if a project isn't going to work right or there's a problem, you know, don't sit there and throw good money after bad. I mean, it's sometimes you make a mistake, but it, you've got to accept the mistake and move on. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 75, and today's guest is Mike Relic. Mike is currently the co-CEO at PacSun and has spent his career in the retail industry. He's not my typical guest that's focused mostly on marketing, but Mike's experience in retail and technology systems and operations are a perfect balance to the various marketing professionals that have been on my show. Mike's a longtime industry friend, and I think that you're going to find his insights very useful. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mike Relic. Mike is co-CEO of Paxon with oversight to the company's operations, including sourcing, supply chain, distribution, planning and allocation, IT, finance, legal, and human resources. Under his leadership, the company significantly improved operations at its Groveport, Ohio, D.C. Mike has also served in various COO roles for iconic brands such as Lucky Brand, Crate and & Barrel, and Guess. Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I'm pleased to be here. Well, it's uh, nice that we get to uh, see one another. We we tend to be working a little bit together uh, these days, so that's uh, that's nice. Uh, our first opportunity to do that, and you know, I've always appreciated um, you staying in touch. I, I think we first met. I was probably at Steve Madden. You were at Guess. Uh, we might have been doing a vendor check of of some type, and uh, it's funny how so many of the uh, folks that I'm connected with now and have a relationship with at some point, we did a vendor check together. Yeah. You know, it's the same with me. There's a lot of people in my network that actually I've first introduced that way and we've kept in contact and I think it's, it's pretty valuable. Absolutely. So the way we get started in this show uh, most of the time is to talk about uh, your first story. I also, you know, uh, as we talk to uh, folks and I've done more than 70 shows now, it's so interesting how, uh, what people have wound up doing for most of their career, a good part of their career, there was some uh, foreshadowing going on as they were earlier in their life and, and in their career. Um, you've been a retail lifer, it appears. So was there any retail back in the early days of Mike growing up? Um, you know, the only retail that I had was my brother worked for Sears. And when I was and back then, you know, they were less stringent about labor laws. And I used to help do inventories. And so I think I was like 13 or 14. And, you know, they paid me a couple bucks an hour to go count count items. And so, um, you know, that was probably my only foray into retail before uh, before I graduated from college. And are you a West Coast guy or, uh, growing up? Uh, born and raised in Southern California. Okay. And then, you know, I, I noticed uh, University of Maryland. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because actually I, I was made in Canada because my older brothers and sisters, my parents lived in Quebec and um, they moved about three weeks before I was born. So um, first American in my family. But University of Maryland. So my father was an engineer at, with Bechtel building power plants, and he spent about a decade in Korea. And so I actually lived in Korea for a little over a year, taught English, and I went to a University of Maryland satellite campus in Seoul that serviced the American Eighth Army. And I studied Korean language and, uh, and accounting and actually uh, anthropology courses. Well, my son is a, a graduate of Maryland, a little closer to New Jersey, where we live. He went to uh, to Maryland, actually in Maryland for uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, for his uh, for his schooling. Uh, that's great. So, you know, we, we talked about, you know, the retail um, lifer. You got your early uh, start at Broadway stores. You were kind of on the merchandise and promotions side of the business. Uh, so what were you doing back then? Well, actually, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, I graduated. It was, you know, the Reagan recession. Unemployment was probably at a post-war high. And it was tough finding the job then. And I went down to the Army recruiter or Navy recruiter, and I took the test, and I was going to be a naval aviator. I wanted to fly planes like my uncle did. And um, I was literally three days away from signing up, and I got a call from Broadway stores. It was Carter Holly Hill back then. They had a programmer aptitude. They had a programmer trainee class, and I did come in, take a programmer aptitude test, which I did very well on, and then they offered me to become a programmer trainee in their data center. And at the time, it was big. They owned Neiman Marcus, Bergdorf Goodman, John Wanamaker, Contempo Casuals, Broadway Stores, uh, Emporium Capwell, etc. So it was, it was you know next to Federated Department Stores was the biggest, and I started out actually writing assembly language on a mainframe. And I did that for a couple years and, you know, was a mainframe programmer and then um, decided that I didn't like people telling me what to do. I wanted to get into management. So I ended up becoming a manager and then becoming a director. And I managed actually credit and sales promotion systems. So did you have schooling around systems and, and tech or did you kind of learn it, you know, on the fly? Yeah, well, I was actually in college. I was an anthropology major, and actually I was working for an archaeological firm. And when people build houses, you need to do a survey and see if there's any Indian artifacts or such. And um, I was doing that, and you know, I planned to get a PhD in, in anthropology or archaeology. And I took a programming class, and it was on an Apple, Apple II. And, oh, my God, I had so much fun. I, I, did a, I wrote a blackjack game with graphics, got, I think, 150 points out of 100. And I thought, they're going to pay me to do this? Oh, man, I want to do this. So I changed my major, and I got my degree in actually in, in information systems. Interesting. And um, so after um, Broadway, you had a stint at Wet Seal um, as CIO. So you make this leap now into a, a CIO role in a retailer. Um, this was, I guess, uh, early 2000s? It was early 2000s, yes. So yeah, this is around, right around the same time that I was at uh, at Brooks Brothers. Talk a little bit about you know your uh, initial involvement in the web. Um, you know, you're probably from a CIO perspective, that wasn't your initial focus. You had enterprise systems. Uh, did you start taking on responsibilities for digital commerce as well? Well, just I mean, just step back before Wetzel, I worked for a company called Homebase, 
And at that time, you know, I, I introduced the first uh, Linux server and non-mainframe email. And then I actually was working part-time uh, on an, on an e-commerce startup called shopping.com. So I kind of got my, sunk my teeth into that. And then I had gone to, to home base, after home base, I worked for an e-commerce startup. And this was in the, basically the 1999 e-commerce boom. And it was a company called Free Borders out of, uh, out of San Francisco. And I think I was the seventh employee. And so I really was, you know, and I saw all these startups and being in San Francisco at the time and watching that was just uh, unreal. I remember going into a meeting with a PowerPoint and walking out with $25 million. And then, of course, that collapsed. Um, so that's how I ended up at, at Wet Seal. <clears throat> I was hired because they put in Retech, which is Oracle Retail now. I had put that in, in Homebase and was somewhat of an expert at it. So they had a really problematic implementation and I came in and cleaned it up and you know and cut a whole lot of costs and then I was a little bored because I felt like okay I'm the Maytag man now everything's working so <laughs> ecom was was losing money and of course it was the early days and I went to the C, the CEO and I said hey let me run ecom you know I've got the capacity and I'm interested so I took it over and actually we grew the business and made it profitable and I was running you know, not just the web, but also fulfillment in the DC and uh, customer service. So that was my first foray into running uh, e-com operations. And that business was what vertical? What, what products were you selling? Teen, teen fashion. So we were selling knit, knit tops, woven tops, a denim, etc. Everything that you know, wet, wet sill was was pretty much like Forever Twenty One in terms of the product categories. We actually did a deal. We were one of the first ones to do a deal with Amazon. Amazon at the time were selling just books and tapes. They approached us and I thought, hey, we could use the business. Why not? And we were one of the first ones, first apparel retailers on Amazon's marketplace back then. That's amazing. You know, as uh, you know, as uh, e-commerce developed in um, over the years, and you were on the on the tech side, how do you balance? And and by the way, you're the first, probably of the seventy shows I've done, uh, the first non-marketer. Uh, that not that you're not a marketer, but you know, you're more of an on the operational side of the the business. How do you interact? Uh, whether it's in your current place or in others that you've you've been in, how does uh, somebody in your role with your skills and your responsibilities interact with the marketer uh, in the business? You look at marketing now, and I remember you know, I was involved in the MIT CIO symposium for a number of years, and I remember being asked a question, and someone said, "Well, you know, the CMO is going to have a bigger budget than IT, and they're going to determine the spend." And I remember looking at them and say, well, you know, not as long as I move old. <laughs> but I actually had quite a background in marketing from a tech side. When I was back working at Carter Holly Hill, you know, Nima Marcus has a loyalty program um, in Circle. And actually, I was a programmer and helped develop that system eons ago. I mean, it was on a mainframe, but, but I worked on that system. You know, for Broadway, we launched basically a, a marketing program, a loyalty program called Club West. I launched uh, Be Rewarded at Arden B, which was part of Wet Seal. You know, and, and part of my my background at Broadway stores, well, or Carter Holly Hill at the time, was to manage sales promotion systems. So we wrote a whole promotion tracking system for Neiman Marcus. 
And so I had a lot of experience working with the marketing folks. And, you know, when you look at marketing, there's two types of people, right? You've got the creative people. They're all about the creative. And you have the what I call the, the quantitative folks. You know, they're the ones that just looking at data and want to show what's proven, right? And everyone knows, I mean, John Wanamaker, he had a famous saying, and I know half of my of my barking spend is is wasteful. I just don't know which half. And so a good marketer will always wants to go and say, hey, let me look at data and let's figure out what's working and not spend on what's not working. And so, you know, given my background there, I always try to come in and speak the same language to them. Right. And what does a marketer want? I mean, of course, you, you, you know, you know, you want to get people to, to, to know your brand, but also you want to drive traffic and conversion. And you want to do that with the most with, with the most effective ROAS or return on ad spend. And so I try to come and talk their language and say, hey, I can help you because, you know, we have a common common goal, which is to grow sales. When you were at uh, Guess, you had pretty uh, explosive growth uh, in that business. When when you're involved in a business like that and you're supporting the systems, how do you kind of keep up with the volume when you've got that kind of growth and, and keeping systems that are in play to be as supportive as they need to be? Guess was kind of a challenge because I started there, we were 600 million in revenue. When I left, it was two and a half billion. Probably 95% of the revenue came from North America. When I started, when I left, it was less than half of the revenue. And we ended up, we had licensees. So it was a combination of buying licensees. Like we bought a license in Europe. We bought a license in Korea. And then we opened, we did some organic growth by opening in China, uh, et cetera. So, you know, the thing is you have all these systems that are disparate, right? Because when you buy a licensee, they have their own tech stack. and You've got to figure out, it's kind of like the, you're down the freeway going hundred miles an hour and how do you change your tires without stopping? And it was kind of tough. And, you know, we were scrappy and we did a lot of innovative things. I mean, I'll just give you just one example. You look at, you know, wholesale was a big component and we had different wholesale systems and it was like, well, let's go put an SAP. Well, no, I want to keep my job, you know, but think about it. A wholesale system, you've got local customers. It's a regional Postals are, it's a regional business. But what I need is I need a common item catalog and I need to make sure I have the same styles across the globe. So I could take a PLM system, impose it on top and have it talk to different hostel systems. And as long as they have common reporting, the business can work. So we did some very innovative things along those lines. And I think that helped us keep ahead of the curve. One of the things, you know, as a marketer, especially on the on the e-commerce side of things, but, you know, I've seen it in enterprise uh, IT, you know, is the challenge of you seemingly never have enough resources to do all the work that you want to do. So how do you work with the business, uh, the business people in prioritizing, evaluating ROI and making decisions of what's going to get done and what gets tabled? You know, it, it's a very, um, I mean, th that is a big problem. And, you know, the, the, my rules were always, look, the first thing we're going to do is anything that enhances revenue, right, and will, is going to get the top priority. And then basically, two, anything that's going to cut expense, right? Because to me, it's all about profitability. And then the third thing is, yeah, you've got technical debt and there's certain maintenance things you need to do. but those would you know, we we would prioritize last, and you know some of them you you have to do like you know for instance let's take PCI right 
the exposure is high. If you're not PCI compliant and you have a breach, it could, you know, it could bankrupt a company, right? So that's something you have to do. But there's other things, you know, oh, it's an old server. Well, you know what? If it works fine, let's prioritize it commensurate to the value it's going to add to the business. There's also what's the complex? I could have a high RO, I mean, a high project that's going to generate a lot of value. I mean, a lot of a lot of revenue. But if it takes two or three years and there's high risk to implementing it, that's different. I might have something that has a slightly less payback, but it's something that can be implemented quick. So basically, then I would convince the business, let's do this. But I always approached it from a business point of view because it's like, look, we need to grow revenue. Let's figure out what's what's going to work. And the other thing is, I believe in this fail fast. If a project isn't going to work right or there's a problem, you know, don't sit there and throw good money after bad. I mean, it's sometimes you make a mistake, but it, you've got to accept the mistake and move on. I see so many businesses, you know, and, and maybe it's it's smaller than it, uh, what you're alluding to. But, you know, even when you you add things to a website, you know, feature and function, it's almost like businesses become emotionally attached. I added X. It cost me X to implement. And now even if I come back and evaluate it and it's not working as I had hoped, they kind of still leave it in there as as a, a badge of honor, so to speak. But you're saying that it makes sense to you know, if you do fail, just kind of move on. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's amazing because having, you know, worked at several companies and especially, you know, companies that have been around for a while, you find out, uh, I, you know, I call it Spanish tradition. You come in, hey, why do you have this and why do you do it? Or why are you doing this? And they say, well, we've always done it that way. And then when you dig in on half the stuff, you find out, well, look, we really don't even need this. But to your point, it's, you know, it ends up being a badge of, of, of courage. People move on and everyone forgets why it got done to begin with. Kind of like uh, all the reports that get uh, spewed out every morning uh, in, a, in a business. And if you stopped sending them all, what percentage of the ones that you've been sending are still going to be requested by people? Who's going to miss them? You know, it just feels like there's, you know, such so many that get produced. Well, that's hilarious. I mean, just early in my career, we were using business objects. And we had a project to convert to MicroStrategy and, and I mean, not to get off in the details, but we did exactly that. There was like thousands of reports and I just said, hey, stop sending them and let's see. And to your point, if I asked them, they'd say they need them. But guess what? We stopped sending them. Nobody requested them. And it, I mean, we'd be surprised it was over half the reports were just nobody used. Yeah, I've heard that numerous times. You know, let's talk about we're kind of getting to to this culture. You know, you've had the opportunity to be in a number of different businesses. How do you adapt as an employee to companies that have a different culture than maybe the one you came most recently from? I always consider myself a flexible person and I like to solve problems. So, you know, when I evaluate which companies to go to, you know, it to me, it's always fun to say, you know, if you're going to come in as a Maytag man and just sit there and host town halls, you know, that's not very fun. And that's that's not something that's for me. But what I like to do is come in and say, OK, look, are you trying to transform the business? Are there certain problems you're trying to fix and at least get alignment, you know, with management or whoever's hiring me that, you know, we you know the same agenda. And then once you come in, you know. It, it's, it's always tough. There's always a different culture, but you have to be flexible because, you know, I know from my guest days, you know, when people came in and tried to change what guest was, they failed. 
And so to me, you have to come in and accept this is the company, but let me see, given the culture, how I can make the biggest impact. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. All right, let's jump to your current situation. Um, help the listeners understand there was something called PSEB, Paxson, Eddie Bauer. Uh, give us some framework of when you got to the company. Was it just Paxson and then Eddie Bauer became part of it or uh, just lay out that timeline? Uh, so Paxson and Eddie Bauer were both holdings from Golden Gate Capital. And they own both companies and they were managed separately. It was in their portfolio. So they had made a decision, I believe around 2018, to say, hey, well, why don't we combine these? Because, you know, if you look at Asina or maybe Tapestry, a lot of retailers were coming in and saying, hey, look, let's go and combine. We'll have a portfolio of brands. And we think we can go and increase EBITDA by taking the back office functions, combining them, getting leverage, and then anything consumer facing will keep separate. So the consumer, you know, sees because you know, Eddie Bauer is a much different brand than PacSun, different demographic and such. And so they, you know, went down that path, and it was actually reasonably successful. You know, the issue that happened was really the Groveport Distribution Center. You know, combining those, there were there were some problems, and so I ended up getting hired as a COO. And it was, you know, a couple things. One was look. You know, the, the, the D.C. has some high expenses and there's some problems and some productivity issues. Go fix that. And then second, you know, we we would like to maybe get on some common systems and let's and figure out how you do that. So I came in in 2019 and, you know, I started a week before Black Friday. So you can imagine and you know, I ended up going to D.C. and, you know, a backlog of, you know, a million units, you know, Nikom. I mean, it, 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 it was fun. And I remember walking in thinking. Like, oh, my God, is this what I signed up for? But anyway, when I talk about the problems I like, okay, this was a big problem. Ended up, came up with a plan, and I think we were executing it. And it, it was a sound plan, and we were fixing the problems. Then, of course, COVID hit. And, you know, COVID was, you know, what, what is uh, Mike Tyson? He made that comment. Everybody, you know, has got a plan until you get punched in the face. And it was something like that. We got punched in the face. And so... But the gentleman who had hired me had left. He for personal reasons, and so here I am, you know, a couple months into a job. You know, the guy who hired me is gone, and we're going into COVID, and we're shutting down all our stores for who knows how long. And I was like, oh my god, you know, this is uh, this <laughs> this is a little scary. Uh, and they had a board chairman as as you know, interim CEO, and then he him and I got along, and he asked me, hey do you want to be interim CEO? And I said, of course. So I took over the mantle of interim CEO. You know, it was a little bit of a you know, scary time because your stores are closed. You know, you don't have the cash flow and, you know, what's going to, and no one, it was all this uncertainty. So we ended up getting pretty scrappy. We turned around and we implemented ship from store. We had it you know, implemented and we implemented PacSun. We implemented it and it was supposed to go live in Eddie Bauer. We did it in literally 
in about two weeks. And, you know, we had furloughed a lot of the company, but what we ended up doing is uh, keeping a handful of store, I mean, about 100 store managers from each brand and said, hey, you come into the stores and ship e-commerce orders and you'll be by yourself. So it's social distancing. Well, of course, we had to wrestle with the malls. Hey, the malls closed. Well, it doesn't matter. The lease says I have access to the store for business reasons. And then, hey, FedEx, pick up my packages. Well, are you crazy? The mall's closed. No, no, please come. Or, hey, store manager, go fill up a, some uh, trash bags with your orders and go drop them off at the at the FedEx depot. So we were actually shipping about 40,000 units a day out of the stores, e-commerce orders, fulfilled by store managers. So it gave us the cash flow. And the beauty was when the stores opened back up after three and a half months, we had no aged inventory. All right. So all that seasonal merchandise was gone and so you know of course that positioned us well and then you know of course we had to talk and to suppliers and say hey look we're you know financially we're fine please ship us you know all this stuff that i think every retailer had to do but then we were able to basically really leverage that into you know 2021 which is probably the best year we ever had so it, it was you know so i was basically responsible for all the operational goods items and i had the president of each of eddie bauer reporting to me the president of pack sun well then um golden gate capital decided to sell eddie bauer to to uh spark and uh abg authentic brands group so i you know, put together a team we did the due diligence we performed the transaction and at the time i wondered am i putting myself out of a job but then they came to me and said you know well you know, we've liked what you've done, you know, we'll make you co-CEO. And the gentleman that I was co-CEO with, he, he had been at the company 17 years and, you know, really did a good job running Sun. So, you know, I understood the point that even though he had reported to me from an operational point of view, it was like, okay, let's just make us peers and, you know, we'll split the business. And um, right. he's a really good guy and it, we made it work. So let's talk about co-CEO. So you don't, that's not a common structure. Uh, how does that work? for people in the organization and, and for the two people that are sharing the role? So, I mean, at Cosio, so it's it's interesting. And, and a lot of people will tell you it doesn't work. And it's not easy. Because, I mean, normally, you, you know, you might have either a president and the CEO or, you know, a CEO, COO. But there's one person in charge. You know, here you're kind of splitting it. You know, so to me, there's a couple things that make this actually successful one is you need respect trust communication and collaboration and if you have that among both co-ceos it can work and then what you need is a clear delineation of responsibilities so that you know what what's your in your lane what's in the other person's lane but then to recognize the contribution that each of you because you know when you come in here Nobody knows everything, right? I mean, people have different different strong suits and different levels of experience. And then, you know, when you have that respect and trust, you're able to know. So certain things, you know, I could bring in Alfred. Hey, you know, what do you think here? And, and we communicated. I mean, we talked multiple times daily. So I think that was really critical to making this work. Interesting. One of the things I know about you in conversations that uh, we've talked about and things that I've read while you're at PacSun, you like to try things. You like to get involved in some things that uh, others might not be doing. 
like accepting Bitcoin. What drives you in that area? Is it curiosity? Is it wanting to be on the bleeding edge or what? It's not really wanting to be on the bleeding edge. I think that with retail, it, it's experiential. And look, you know, there, the competition is so intense. And anybody can go to China, can, you know, you get a designer, I can go and get get any kind of uh, article made and then try to sell it. But you need to basically differentiate yourself. And a lot of it is about, you know, creativity and also uh, execution. And so you look now, every business is a technology business. You know, before retailers was like, oh, we'll open the store, merchants will pick stuff, we'll ship it there. And, you know, the only as long as we have a POS and a sales audit system, life will be wonderful. And we'll print these big mainframe reports that are six feet high that nobody looks at. And, and you know, if we, if we miss it one day, everyone's going to scream. Um, to now, I mean, think about it. You know, it, every company is a technology company. You look and customers, because they have access to all this technology at home, they expect the same thing with business. I look at this and say, OK, well, how can we try things to improve the business? and differentiate ourselves. And I always laugh when I tell these vendors, look, I've got a, a champagne taste, but I have a beer budget. <laughs> so look, I'm willing to work with you. And, and you know, one thing, we'll take the product and we'll try to go and make sure it meets our requirements. And since we're the first guy, you know, we'll have a lot of uh, a lot of influence over the product direction. And then I'll use, you know, whether it's PacSun or Crate and Barrel or Guess, you know, I'll use the power of our brand to go and, and use our megaphone to help you be successful because look to me this is actually it the reason why it works is because there is a joint agenda here because i don't want to put a lot of money in a startup if they fail and then you know i ended up wasting a lot of money and time and so i want them to be successful and of course they need domain experience so it actually works out pretty well yeah that's uh, you know that's kind of the approach that uh, you know i've taken throughout my career well, look, you've had a, an amazing career, lots of good stuff. You're a good guy. We're down to the end of our show. I have a two-minute drill, seven questions, one word answer. Are you ready, Mike Relic? I am ready. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Yamaha. Okay. Favorite app on your phone? Probably my banking app. <laughs> the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Cyclegear.com. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. Music. I'm not good at music. Charitable organization that you're passionate about. International Rescue Committee. It's a. It was formed by Albert Einstein, and it helps basically people around the world, especially refugees. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Fix the environment. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? My motorcycle possess. I have seven motorcycles. I'm a fanatic about bikes. And that's why I like Yamaha is my favorite brand. And that's why I shopped at Cycle Gear. <laughs> All right. Well, I after you mentioned Yamaha, I didn't think it was about a, an electric piano. I figured it was a, a bike. So where can people reach out to you, uh, Mike, on social media if they'd like to connect? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best. Okay, great. Hey, Mike, thanks for uh, doing this. Nice to see you again. I'm glad we have an opportunity to interact a little bit in our respective roles now. You're a gentleman and uh, always learn something new from you every time we talk. Well, likewise, Mark, I really appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate our friendship. Yeah.
That's it. Today's game ball goes to Mike Relic for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, we all have so many tasks to get done in any given day, and within a company, there's always a balance of what to do first. Mike spoke about how he prioritizes projects, those that are revenue generating, then those that will reduce costs, and then everything else, even those items that help to keep the lights on. We have to be about profitability, so think about how you and your colleagues are prioritizing your projects. Number two, Mike used the term fail fast. Mike's become someone who has tried lots of different programs in the spirit of trying to compete in a crowded marketplace. As he noted, make your decision of what to test, get it in the market, and then make your decision. Don't be afraid to walk away if it turns out that it didn't meet your expectations. And number three, one thing that I really do not like hearing from anyone is something that Mike also referenced. When you ask someone to explain something, why they do it, how they do it, and they say, well, we've always done it that way. That just makes me shake my head. Question what you're doing. If it does not make sense to you, it's likely not the proper way to handle the task. Don't be afraid to question the status quo. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details. 